Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American. Let's get it! By the time this episode airs, it will have been about four weeks since George Floyd's murder and since mass demonstrations have begun all across the country in the wake of his death. All four officers involved have been charged, except ex-officer Derek Chauvin was recently released on bail. So our communities continue to fight, but are also beginning to rebuild. One recent victory we can count is that the Minneapolis City Council committed to defunding the Minneapolis Police Department. We'll have to see what this means in the coming months. However, there's still so much work to do. And there are still many people in our community, the Hmong and Asian community to be exact, that are still questioning why we should support Black Lives Matter when it resulted in the destruction of businesses, properties, and the disruption of their lives. In response to this, we committed our next episode series to learning and teaching how to be better allies to our Black and Brown communities. As a result, this month we've had conversations with Hmong innovating politics about the significance of building coalitions and recognizing our power when we stand in solidarity with other communities of color. Then we spoke with Dr. Yang Lor to deconstruct oppressive systems and examine why Hmong folks might refuse to be allies with other communities of color and how we can encourage them to move in that direction. Today, we're taking the divine opportunity to speak with Gajova, co-executive director of Freedom Inc., to learn more about her work in undoing anti-blackness and anti-LGBTQ sentiments within our communities, and particularly how to be better allies in those spaces. We also discussed how to fight the rampant patriarchy and sexism in the Hmong community while advocating for these radical changes. You know, maybe now we can take the time Kushu, to hear from you. Um, if you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, Freedom Inc., your work, and um, you know, just what, yeah, what brings you to this today, to this conversation with us, and why you're so willing to share your time with us. And again, we're so appreciative of it. So, a little bit about me. Um, I was born in the in Laos, and then my, you know, like many of our journeys, my mom, uh, my le- my dad was airlifted out of Longkang, mm-hmm. uh, the military um, camp. But my mom and us, we had to find our own way. And so um, we lived in the refugee camp for about five years. And then we came to the U.S. and, oh, 1980, actually. And then landed in Philadelphia and uh, found out where the rest of our families were and uh, moved here to Wisconsin. And it's been years later, but when we landed in Philadelphia, the things I remember were quite vivid were lights and my first experience of the education system or my first experience of America, we lived in an all black community. And so my kindergarten uh, photo school year, you know, do you have your class year photos? Yeah, it was yeah. like me, my cousin, and then everybody else was black. Wow. And yeah. And so we left quickly and we found our relatives in Wisconsin. So we left quickly and uh, resettled in Wisconsin. But it was in, until years later when I was organizing and some of the black organizers said, yeah, one year we had all these Asian people. Um, and then the next year they were all gone. And I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. that was my family. <laughs> like, so there was a whole bunch of Southeast Asian folks who were resettled in Philadelphia. And then many of us left the following year. Um, And then when we landed uh, and resettled here in Wisconsin, we uh, were resettled in some of the poorest communities here in Madison amongst black and brown folks. And so I remember growing up with black people, but not being friends with black people. I remember growing up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of black kids and we went to school together. At school, we would recognize and acknowledge each other. But when we got home, we didn't play and we weren't Mm -hmm. in community together. And so growing up, like that was my kind of my life experience. And so when I started Freedom Inc., um, of course, it was a Hmong and, and a few other Southeast Asian, Khmer and Lao folks who were in youth groups when I, when I started the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was predominantly a Hmong organization. And it came out from the work of gender justice, uh, really looking at um, gender-based violence, so domestic violence, mm-hmm. sexual assault. Mm-hmm. 
And also I created Freedom Inc. because I didn't see any of the other organizations, like the Hmong Mutual Associations, like mm-hmm. addressing any of the things that I was going through. And so at a very young age, um, I can remember even in my early teens, not having language for what gender justice looked mm-hmm. like, but yeah. feeling the injustice of being a, a Hmong daughter. Um, and those injustices were my brothers didn't have to cook and clean. My sister and I did. Or my bro- my older brother having the ability to get on the phone when I'm with anybody on the phone and tell me to get off. Yeah. You know, yes. <laughs> just like certain things. That uh. I was like, wow. Or my sisters and I couldn't go to the mall and our friends would have to pick us up two blocks away from the house, give us a ride. And then we would have to pretend like we took the bus home. Like just so, mm. so many yeah. like gender based rules for us. And I remember, you know how we always have those festivals and, and uh, gatherings and mm-hmm. uh, uh, onang stuff in the, on the weekends. And just like seeing my, my mom and my sister and them, I must have been like young teen. But just seeing us doing all of that labor and then having to like mm-hmm. set the table. And then during those early years, like we didn't know enough to even set two uh, simultaneous mm-hmm. meals. Yeah. We would set it for the men and they would eat and then whatever was left, we would reset the table for the women and children. And just remembering to myself what like injustice felt like, it was like, what well, we got to eat after. So like one day I just like was in the kitchen eating and I was like, oh, I'm going to eat for my mom, my sister. Yes. And, and, yes. Yeah. Yes. and so those are like my memories of like creating a, a different world that I wanted to be in and creating a, a just world. And so when I created Freedom Inc., it was that in mind. And so quickly, Freedom Inc., um, after 10 years of being, almost like eight to 10 years of being in operation, I would do, uh, my my staffs would go into these low-income community centers and we would do Hmong girl-specific programming. Mm. And the black girls in the community were like, well, we want a black girls program. We want to be an all-girls program. And so we try to do it together, but we quickly learned that our there was, uh, there was such a difference in our cultures yeah. that we could not have the two, uh, the black and Hmong girls in one group together. And so we started a black girls gr- group. And so that's how uh, Freedom Inc. became uh, a Southeast Asian and black organization. But always here being in the Midwest, like if you weren't, if you didn't grow up in the Twin Cities and you grew up in Wisconsin or you grew up like in other places outside of the three um, predominantly large states of for Hmong mm-hmm. people, uh, Wisconsin's a little bit different. We're um, throughout the state, so we're not yeah. in in two cities. We're not concentrated, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so so what I was saying about that when I started Freedom Inc., like I already knew in my head, like to get ahead and to like really start an organization that was going to be focused on social justice. That in the Midwest, it would not be by Hmong people alone, just by the sheer numbers of of the population, and so. Uh, Freedom Inc. had, uh, in my mind, had always been created so that there would be possibilities to grow and and collaborate with other races and other ethnic groups. That's so, I think, incredibly powerful. And so thank you so much, Kajal, for sharing that. And um, I think that brings us to the conversation today, right? Because it's been about three weeks since the murder of George Floyd in the Twin Cities, and that has created an like ripple effect all across the country and the world, right? Um, we've seen mass demonstrations and, you know, as Asian American, Hmong American allies, we still know that there's so much more work to do. And, and, and so, you know, maybe to start off the, today's conversation, right? Like, and folks will, will give some more context about um, what happened to George Floyd, but in the process of, um, you know, folks reacting and, and reeling and grieving about George Floyd's death. Like there was a lot of riots and looting that happened as a result of it. Uprisings. Yes. There was a huge uprising. Right. And, um, but in the process of that, there were a lot of like Hmong and Asian businesses that were destroyed and a lot of anger erupted from that. And of course, you know, displayed the anti-blackness in our community, um, unfortunately. And so um, there were a lot of, conversations going back and forth like why how is this advancing the justice for George Floyd right like what will this help or you know what will it solve and so you know we want to ask like from your perspective like what I I think and and you kind of alluded to this in in some of your social media posts but like what did you mean by like people over buildings right and like um how how do we still get to mourn or how do Hmong and Southeast Asian businesses like get to still mourn their businesses and also like hold space and justice for George Floyd. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a few things um, that people have to have a base understanding of, and -hmm. it's really hard to, to have this conversation with uh, folks who also like, so we basically have to start at at the beginning, like Mm -hmm. the police, the police force was created for like a lot of home people don't understand, but it was really created to control slaves Mm -hmm. and it was, it was created to protect uh, property. Mm-hmm. And so if you understand that essence, then you understand mm-hmm. that, oh, you know, it wasn't really that people needed protection because safety issues and all of these social ills. And when someone's having a mental breakdown, you call the police. It was mm-hmm. really basically to control the slaves who were running away and to con- mm-hmm. to help white people protect their properties. And so if you understand it from that, that the foundation of where it started, and then on top of that, you understand that you know, that's like 400 years or at least 200 years of controlling a population that lives here that feels like the police is an occupying force, then you start to see it from their point of view. And so when I made that statement, it was right after, and and there's a couple of things um, that I'd like young Hmong listeners to to hear. Mm -hmm. When I made that statement, um, it is not a new statement. And in fact, Black people yes. and people who are <clears throat> uprising against oppressors throughout the world always say uh, people over property. and Yeah, or like people over profits, right? Like so yes, very yes. strong. Target yeah. is definitely profit. And yeah. so, <laughs> so there's a couple of things that I, I really feel that happened. Um, first of all, uh, Minneapolis is Hmong Central or Hmong City. And mm-hmm. so that probably felt a, a, a hit a nerve. Second of all, then you have Thu Tao. My post prior to that is like, we don't want any more Thu Taos. And so we have to explain that too. So people are probably pissed around that too. And then, so the the no more Thu Taos is something we should talk about. Like, what does that look like when we're silent and when Mm -hmm. we're complicit Mm -hmm. to racism or to anti-Blackness? But uh, so going back to that, Minneapolis is Hmong hub, Hmong city. And so it hit a nerve. And how dare you say that? Because my cousin's restaurant got burnt down and they didn't do anything. Right. But if you understand race relationships and you understand the complexities of how Asian people are privileged um, in this system of racism, just like and I, I go back to the L.A. riots where. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's conflicts between Hmong and Black, I mean, uh, Koreans and Black, black um, uh, community members. That wasn't something that all of a sudden Black people got up, woke up one day and said, I'm going to burn this Korean store down. There's a historical context to that. And so I don't live in Minneapolis. I I mm-hmm. um, have never lived there. I mean, I know I have a large family there, but I can only imagine the anti-Blackness that is perpetuated against black uh, customers who probably come through or they never go through, they never go into these stores. And so um, being a Hmong person, I already know. And so um, outside of that, like I definitely agree. Target has stolen from indigenous designs to making profits from. Yeah. And so you all, I'm not, I don't even have to be an expert in that to know that. Like something that we also miss um, when we talk about this is that, um, you know, where Target is built and where a lot of those stores are built, um, there used to be like a, a like really successful black community, right, that was destroyed mm-hmm. when um, they built the uh, the highway there, right, Interstate 94. And so like, there, there was so much looting already, you know, from communities of color and specifically the black community black in people. that area. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, great for you to say, because I think that that's something I'm not from that community. And I already knew if people in that community are willing to burn it down, it wasn't theirs to start with. Yeah, is what I'm saying. Right. And then my mm-hmm. cousin was like, well, what about our house? What about our... I said, go out there, put a Black Lives Matter sign there, march with them. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then also like your your member, your community knows if you've been anti-black or not. You know, and so I think when I say profit, I mean, people over profits, I think most people of all people should understand that. And then I want to also say there's a there's a lot of learning out here that we need to do. If you think about it, racism could not have thrived without capitalism. Yes, the fact that absolutely. this is such a deep understanding. And when I got it, I'm like, oh, I get that. The, mm-hmm. the fact that this country was built on 400 years of free labor off of black bodies, whether it be in, in enslavement 
or in prisons in in the incarceral uh, state. Like free labor, so and those mm-hmm. of you who aren't deemed mm-hmm. as human, and those of you who mm-hmm. are deemed as not worth a living wage, like that's labor theft, right? That is, totally. uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm saying, like, there's such a deeper understanding that once you get that, then you're like, oh, okay. So Target made a whole bunch of money off of these Hmong scarves that they took yep. from China, yep. and China mm-hmm. stole from Hmong people, and Hmong people never got a penny, and Hmong women were wearing it all over the globe, but yet you, like, sad because Target got burnt down. Yeah, You know, and then I think the, the uh, quote, it's not mine, it's my co-directors, but she said, the walls of Target, the concrete of Target did not cry for its mama. The mm-hmm. sidewalks did not cry for its mama. George Floyd cried for his mama. And the fact that we're even thinking about Target is the anti-Black in that. And um, going back to, I think, even my own family, when I made that post, what I, the anti-Black that I saw in that was that nobody cared about George Floyd. I got like 300 shares and 700 hate mails. And, but prior to the Target conversation, not one of those cousins said, who lived in Minneapolis or who's mm-hmm. like now all of a sudden distraught because fuck Target is now the conversation. They, I didn't hear nothing about George. So it was after the fuck Target and George's Lives Matter. Then they're like, of course we cared about George and mm-hmm. Target, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's it's that's so um I, I think it makes a lot of us reflect, right? Because I think a lot of us had um or maybe I shouldn't be generalizing, but had those initial reactions too, right? Like, oh my God, what about all the properties and what about all the Asian businesses? So I, I think it's really great that you're bringing up those perspectives. And maybe this will tie into our next question, Liz, about um the economic contributions that black people have made to society, right. And how their bodies and labor continue to be exploited in mm-hmm. via either, you know, the school to prison pipeline, um, or, you know, like literally being paid like $0 while they're working in, you know, um, in, as in prisoners, prison. yeah. right. Like fighting yeah. the fires in California, right. They're paid like two cents an hour or $2 an hour, which is ridiculous. Yeah. I think something or maybe Liz can elaborate on this, but like, you know, how do we begin to undo that harm then, right? Like, how do we continue to like uplift and may- maybe it is reparations or maybe it- it's it's something else. Um, and Liz, do you want to elaborate on, on that? You know, do we get to kind of mourn these businesses? Because I think one way that I have connected to to uh, the the two concepts is that you know a lot of these businesses you know weren't paying living wages to their employees anyway right like as much as uh, you know some of these uh, Asian businesses are great in the community like I think I really wonder what value they bring to us like if if they can't you know um, not exploit you know some of our Hmong aunties or you know black and brown people right because like we know that in a lot of these restaurants right there are um, you know, uh, South American, Mexican folks like working in the mm-hmm. kitchen, right? And so, yep. um, you know, I, I, I really love that you bring in on the concept of capitalism to the schedule because, um, you know, understanding like obviously um, a lot of our, our community came to America for the quote unquote American dream, right? And that is to, to make money and be comfortable, right? And so, you know, uh, how do we, how do we kind of, say, okay, your pursuing of your American dream is is also kind of like pushing down other people, right? And it's it's depriving other people of pursuing their American dream. Um, you know, and I think you get at this a little bit, but uh, you know, when you when you talk about not valuing people's bodies and contributions to society equally. But yeah, I, I don't know if if there's like an easy answer to this. But you know, I'm I'm just curious, like how do we show people that like these systems that are supposedly helping them, you know, win, right? Like, um, isn't really helping them win at all, right? I mean, this is a young people's conversation because mm-hmm. you all have this vision that you came here, you want to work hard, you're following the American dream. Like the refugees in us, like we came here, we're just trying to survive. And so my mom's generation, they're not, you know, I mean, there's a a few of them who have had success, but the majority of them um, are still living this cycle of poverty and will Mm -hmm. never get out of that. There are many Hmong families who will be living 
the cycle of poverty. And there are many Hmong people who think that education is the key out. But the fact that like uh, this world can be racist and, and devalue Black people and Black bodies, mm-hmm. that same system is a system that thinks that you as an Asian person are less than a white person. And so these are all the same systems. We just happen to have a little bit of privilege. And then so going back to this conversation about capitalism, like you think that you're in Milwaukee, you're in a black community. You think that you were able to get this business because because you're so much harder working and you're so much better than the Mm -hmm. black people who've been there for 400 years. That is the system at play. And this is the same reason why uh, Black folks in Los Angeles were upset with the Koreans. Might be Mm -hmm. the same reasons why Black folks in Minnesota and Minneapolis is upset with the home people who can get the store, but they can't. Same reason why we have a a, a K-Korean beauty shop, but not a Black owner. Because these systems are put in place so that black owners can't get the hair that they need for uh, their overcharge or the the sellers from Asia won't even sell to them because they're black. And so I'm saying that there is a system at play here. And if you don't understand that system, then you will have believed that you're so much better and you're so much uh, smarter Mm -hmm. and you're so much hardworking. And that's why you're getting ahead. And that's why black people are not. And so the reason why, like, um, of course, you care about your Hmong community. But the reason why the do Taos and and the reason why I'm able to say fuck Target and yes, if my business was in line and I and they felt like it wasn't part of their community, they're in an uprising. And so I'm saying to you all, like I think that we are complicit, just like Do was complicit. Yep. Yeah, we yeah. felt like as long as it wasn't their uh, uh, that officer's knee on my neck or Do's neck, we were fine. Thu had his turn, his back turned. How many of us are Thu's in our everyday life? And so we have Hmong women who are like texting me, like, I don't know what to do. I see racism in my, um, at my work. But if I say I'm going to get fired, you're going to get fired eventually anyway. Just like Thu got fired eventually anyway, but somebody died in the mist. And so for me, the reason why I'm so adamant about speaking out is not on my watch. Will I, will I advance while you have someone's, um, while you have your knee on someone's neck and you're, you're uh, literally killing them on my watch. And so that's why I'm like, okay. Yeah. Fuck target. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Absolutely. Like, I think that's Uh a really good segue, you know, to, to talking about like what it means to be an ally to the black community, right? Like as a Hmong American or as an Asian American, I mean, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we kind of touched upon some of the the difficulties and the complexities, but when you're when your friends, you know, texted and stuff, right? Like, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, how how can we how can we ourselves learn to be better allies, and how can we, you know, mm-hmm. teach others, right, who are reaching out, um, who kind of acknowledge this, right, but like don't know where to start. I don't know if you if you yeah, want to start yeah. with like broad ideas yeah. or any tangible steps. So there's a couple. Th- uh, key advices that I would give. Um, And so, you know, I don't think that anybody should be asking you what you need um, during your time of crisis. So if we're friends, like you, it shouldn't take you when I'm in crisis for you to be like, how can I help you? I just don't know how, like, what what do you want me to do? Mm. I'm in crisis. How am I going to turn around and be like, I don't know. I think I need flowers. I think like you should have been asking me. (laughs) Way before the crisis. Yes. (laughs) So if we were true allies and friends and we're building together, you would know that right now Gusha is going through this and she actually really loves walks. She actually really loves flowers, like whatever it is. So if you're not truly building relationship and all of a sudden you like, this is your first time and you're going to go to a rally and you're going to do all sorts of stuff may not be the first time to be learning and, and asking questions. You know, and so that's why this is the thing that I learned um, when you remember the Mike Brown uprising. Yep, yep, yep. When Mike Brown, this young eighteen-year-old, was shot in broad daylight with his hands up yep. um, in Ferguson, and yep. when we went there, the lesson that I learned there was: don't ask people how you can show up for them. Like, already have those built relationships so that mm-hmm. when they're in crisis, you know what to do already. And yeah. so since then, that was like five, six years ago. Since then, I'm like, how do we build with Black communities in a non-superficial way so that when mm-hmm. it happens again, because it's going to happen again, that you show up in a way that you know how, right? So I learned then, like, even if I didn't know what to do, because police brutality was so um, different um, in, in the way that they react with Black communities, you could be um, a witness, 
you can take photos, you can bring water, you can cook, you can like, if they've been out in the streets for nine hours, what can you do? You bring water, you make sure that uh, you put your bodies on the line because cops, when they see you and me, they see a human being. They may not see that for another black person. And so yeah. it's beyond just making signs. Like we yes. have to be beyond moan lives, uh, moan people for black lives. Like what are you willing to do? How you, and for those of you who may not be somebody in the streets, like how else are you contributing? Are you donating? Yeah. And so that's a, one of the lessons. The other lessons I've learned is we're not here to save black people. Like the mm-hmm. savior complex. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I love like that's, all I knew how to do growing up, you know, mm-hmm. like anybody, mom, mom, we have more women or like mothers have yes. that complex, <laughs> that, right? Yes, yes. Your kids get in trouble. You jump in, you want to help your kid. Right. And so what I've learned uh, in this struggle, and I'm always constantly having to check myself is I'm not here to save them. They are perfectly fine saving themselves, but I will be damned if I am another person who is watching and guarding and not allowing other people to help like the two towers of the world. And so I'm not going to contribute to your, I'm going to check myself so I don't contribute to your oppression, number one. And not on my watch are you going to get killed without me saying something. And so these are the things that like I run through my head. The other lesson that I've learned is that I'm not black. So I will never know. And so every day um, I will wake up and I will make a promise, um, just like I want men to make a promise to dismantle patriarchy, toxic mm-hmm. uh, masculinity. Yeah. I want to wake up every day and say, okay, if on the basis of racism is the hatred for black bodies and the, the dehumanizing of black people, then how do I wake up every day and say, I'm not going to contribute to that and I'm not going to be part of that. My concern for, for not for the Hmong elders. I know people think, oh, they have these biases. They didn't mm-hmm. grow up here. They don't know. No, my concern's not for them. Because once you un- make it so that they can understand, they're like, oh, I get that. The French yeah. made us slaves and blah. Yeah, yeah. we were trying yeah. to move. It is your generation that I'm really concerned about. Because you were raised in this capitalistic white supremacy culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so your vision of what success looks like is what scares me. And what has been proof to me in the last like three weeks or in the last two weeks from all of the the uh, Facebook stalking and the threats and stuff, it is your generation yeah. that you look at and you're like, wow, they really don't get it. Like, and it's sad. It's not all of you. I mean, this is yeah. beautiful. Like I've met so many intelligent and and Hmong young people who get it, but just the rage from the younger Hmong people you would expect from the elders. And maybe it's the medium. It's like the social media, uh, social media medium that they're all coming through. But the rage of that, I'm like so disappointed. I, I am very scared. Um, and the last thing I want to say about that is because the Asian population and the Latino population, according to the census, mm-hmm. will outgrow most populations. Yeah. It cannot be that the our young Hmong people have this thought and have grown up in in this um, white supremacist capitalistic state that we don't yes. check ourselves and we don't come up with a new narrative. Yeah, how do you all that's, feel about that? Right? No, I'm I, sure. I, I that's, yeah. that's perfect. That is so perfect because. <laughs> You know, we, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and Katie, I want you to chime in because, you know, you're a teacher in Minnesota. Um, but, you know, it's funny because growing up, you know, everyone was like, well, you know, all the old racist people are going to die off and we'll be fine, right? But we were talking about this in our thread where, like, you know, we never talked about race in school, right? And so, like, I think people just assumed that, like, because we're growing up, you know, in the 90s or whatever, um, we would not be racist without having a conversation about race. This past year, I've worked at like uh, a couple different sites, and um, I spent a good amount of time working at a you know a St. Paul school site where um, the student body was about like eighty percent black students. You know, and while I was working with them, it was like around Black History Month and stuff. So me being new, I go in and like I checked out like a hundred books from the library and I bring it in and I'm like, oh man, every day we're gonna like do this and we're gonna dive into this and we're gonna talk about more than just Martin Luther King, you know? I mean, because that's like everybody, that's like common knowledge. Everybody knows who he is, but I'm like, we're gonna talk about like artists and how rap got started and how like you know who's a black chef and veterinarians and like just like go mm-hmm. at it, right? And then like 
my kids looked at me and they were like, why does this concern you? And like, it almost broke my heart because I'm sort of like, what do you mean? Why does this concern? Why doesn't this concern me? It's like, I'm a person of color. So I have every right that I have because of the people of your people who fought for my rights. You know, like I wouldn't be here teaching in front of you if this, if this movement wasn't put in place, you know? And they're like, well, we've never had these conversations and we never read these books before. They're all new to us. And like, then I was really disappointed in myself being in this educational field, knowing that like, these black kids didn't know anything more than Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. You know, it's sort of like, wow, this is your history. And of course this is in a pretty, um, you know, black neighborhood, you know? So I'm just sort of like really disappointed. And I'm just like, man, you know, like we really got to start digging up our own knowledge and our own history because it all ties in together. And they're like, you don't even live in this area. I'm like, I grew up in this area and this area is my area. Just like it's my community it's your community. And, you know, like I, I had a conversation with them. I'm like, you know, just because I'm not black doesn't mean that I wouldn't stand up for you. And I'll be your voice if you feel that someone else ever violates your voice with whether it be in this building or outside of this building. And they're like, so would you roll up and fight for us? Like, you know, like a fight fight. And I'm like, I'm not gonna get arrested, you know, because like, that's what education taught me, you know, like, I'll fight with my words. And that's what you need to do. Because, you know, I need you guys to know that that's where it's going to get you farther. You know, like you guys can't have these fights on the streets because you know where that's going to put you. That's going to put you on the system to go to prison, you know, and it's like they need that reality check. And they're like, wow, that's like the most that anyone else has ever said to us, you know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. but that's a talk that we had. And that was like my reality check that Black History Month isn't Black History Month if you don't know anything about your own history or your own culture. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like, and this is like, you know, fourth grade, you know, and like, it also mm-hmm. made me check my reality, because I'm like, man, we didn't have these talks, like Liz mentioned. And then like this, mm-hmm. and then my spring semester, I went somewhere else. And like, you know, it was like a pretty diverse student body. But you know what, I walked into a first grade classroom on my very first day there. And they were talking about race. They had for math, they were graphing and they were like, oh, what race are you? And I'm like, is it okay for them to talk about this? You know, they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they can identify as whatever they want. Like the teacher was like, they can identify as whatever they want. And I don't care. I just want them to know that race exists. And then they're okay to identify that and talk about that. And I'm like, man, it makes a world difference to actually talk about it this young. And when all this was going down, it was like a very emotional week for all of us here in the cities. But like what drew me back to like, what grounded me was when I was talking with, you know, my first graders checking in on them about the events that are happening. And there's like, why can't everybody just be kind and be nice to each other, regardless of what color you are. And I'm like, man, if a first grader can say that, can understand all the events mm-hmm. going on as simple as that, we need to check ourselves and come back to that. And like, you know, yeah, our generation is crazy, but I have faith in the next generation and I have faith that they'll put everything back, but we need to be, their shepherds and we need to herd them in the right direction mm-hmm. so and i guess this brings us into our next question um what does it mean to defund the police and invest in schools schools instead will this dismantle the school to prison pipeline yeah i mean i think somebody uh, said this i was thinking it about it but um someone else said it and basically we already have that look at the suburbs yeah they don't have police interactions like the inner cities do yep AOT said this. She tweeted it out, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. But I had been thinking about that. And I always Mm -hmm. say, like, people are always asking me, what does a police-free zone look like? Uh, White people, neighborhoods. (laughs) They don't have what, you know. And if you want the police around and you want to feel safe, send them to your neighborhood. It was the same conversation that we were having about like um, uh, video cameras at one time in the city of Madison where people wanted it. I'm like, you want it to have it in your neighborhood. And so I feel like people are all of a sudden scared. Home people, I've heard like are really Mm -hmm. scared what we're going to do. You don't use them anyway. We have domestic Mm -hmm. violence all the time. And you call your Mm -hmm. clan members in and you all negotiate it. And everybody in the family knows that uncle, this person, that person is violent. And this is what we do. And so I'm like, you figured it out how to keep your community uh, not safe from gender-based violence. But you know, you know how to, uh, when to call the police and when not to. And then on top of that, it really, I mean, some people are like making, like making this statement to a flowery, like, no, they really don't mean, don't 
uh, def- uh, get rid of the police. No, for some communities, some black communities, they're like, get rid of the police. And yeah. so I feel like, like making it, uh, toning it down and making people feel comfortable about it is di- diluting what the message really is. It's like in some black and brown communities, the police force has become an occupying force and they actually yep. want them yep. out completely, Right. And in some communities, they're talking about give them half of what they're getting so that we can like fund schools and fund, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, I always go back to the place of we are not black. When Mm -hmm. we call the police, we know that they will come and they will at least look at you and me and have a decent conversation. But that's not the case for this community. And if they're the ones who are saying it ain't working for us then we also have to do our own and we have to study and we have to figure that out. The thing about um, how to connect like the school to prison pipeline to deportation pipeline Mm -hmm. for Southeast Asians, for Hmong people, it's not just prison, it's then deportation, you know? And so I think that um, a lot of people my age, we got caught up in the time where uh, criminalization of black people was, um, hyperactive and that meaning that they had all these legislations in the eighties to like, you know, say no to drugs and we're on uh, the, the war, we on drugs and we were caught up in that. And so as they were heavily policing these low income communities, that's how we got caught up and picked up. Yep. And that's how we ended up in the deportation pipeline. Why do you think now we're also fighting for the, the end deportation of Southeast Asians? <laughs> it's all because of this one system that, that was supposed to impact black communities in those poor neighborhoods, but we were neighbors in those neighborhoods. And I, I mean, I have so many thoughts around. Yeah. But let's Liz, hear it. Say, I mean, no, okay. yeah, no, yeah. let's continue. Cause we're, we're all for it. And, yeah. and honestly, these are the things that like we need to hear and our people, our community members need to hear because, you know, these are the perspectives they're not hearing, right. They're no. just hearing, they're hearing the, Oh, what are we going to do? Like, Who's going to protect us if cops are gone, you know, like, and, and I don't think people understand. Just I'll give you a perfect example. How pervasive it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we had an action a week ago. And at that action, there was this white man, a uh, long ass, uh, I don't know, it was if it was a shotgun or if a, mm. it was a MK-47. And then he had a handgun and it was visibly strapped on him. So the white people come and there's like maybe 500 to 1,000 of us in the streets were Protest, uh, we're rallying, and the white pe- uh, this white couple comes and they're like, "There's a guy over there. He's heavily armed." I said, like, "Can you go tell the police?" And then they come back. That was like at three p.m. And then we're about to march off of our location to the next location. Now we're passing that that guy with the handgun and with the uh, long shotgun, mm-hmm. and there's a police person in front of them. And I told the couple, the same couple who came and told us three hours ago that there was a man with uh, heavily armed. We said, "Can you tell the police to at least guard him or?" get him out of the way until we pass mm-hmm. his corner. Mm-hmm. They're like, the police knows about it. And then as we are approaching in that corner, the police leaves. And then we're, I'm like, why would they leave? And I'm the police liaison at that point, mm-hmm. which means basically what that means is during actions, like you're just the person to like have com- communication with the police so that the yeah. folks can um, have their, their rally. And so, I'm steadily like trying to figure out how to contain the situation. So get some white allies to go and confront him. And then I go to the two uh, black leaders who are leading the protest. And I'm like, there's a black shooter over there. And they're like, uh, literally like, where is it? And, and, you know, they're, we're all at it. And then I'm like over there. And they said, here's the problem. And this is why I'm telling you guys, I'm not black. So I, my, my thing is why the police is going to take care of it. Cause obviously he's heavily armed and there's 500 of us or a thousand of us coming through. <laughs> They're like, this is the problem. And my co-director was telling me, you have a sense that they were there to protect, protect us, protect mm-hmm. you. And so your thing was go get the police. They can handle it. So the way it was handled was we just made allies be the uh, forces between mm-hmm. that shooter and uh, the people protesting who are predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And so we made two lines and they walked through it. Now, I was thinking that, but I also was thinking that the police would help. But mm-hmm. to the black mm-hmm. organizers, they're like, we don't we know they don't protect us. Yeah. So why yeah. they, they were mad at me because I was like. That's mm-hmm. their job. But in my head, my Asian head or my Hmong head, I was still thinking that they're here to protect. 
But to them, they're like, we already know that there's no protection for us. So they created their own protection. So, Mm -hmm. so this whole conversation about defunding is we know that they're not here to protect us. Therefore your false sense of protection did not help us. And in fact, they proved to you that they're not going to protect black bodies. And so, yeah, I mean, my understanding, my lived experience, I'm like, you're right. Like, because I'm not black. So then it goes back to the point of people saying the good protesters and the the looters and the Mm. violent ones, because I'm not black, because I've not lived under 400 years of occupation of this land, I cannot tell you how you can fight for your freedom. And so there will be black people who will fight peacefully and there will be black people who will be upset. And then there also are uh, white supremacist assholes. So all of those can be true. But when people are like, so you condone violence, we are upset about Fong Lee who died 15 freaking years ago. And we name him every time we on our damn march. Mm -hmm. You, somebody just got killed yesterday and -hmm. the day before and the day before. So mm-hmm. I tell my family, my sister in particular, she's like, oh, I get it now. We are still mad about Fong Lee. So please do not tell me how they should peacefully protest. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what people are upset ab- about with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's misdirected anger. Yeah, I'm just telling like- you. I was like, guys, like there are so many other places you could direct your energy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like this is a good segue into the, you know, the patriarchy aspect. Um, Maybe we can come back to, to the, you know, the other perspectives, but like, you know, cause it's, I'm, I'm just curious. It's like when you had the conversation a couple of weeks ago, right. With on live with Tuja Zhong and Maya and Bo, right. And how to support the movement. And they're just all these freaking trolls. Right. And, and super, toxic, dangerous people who are just like coming at you. I thought from the chat that you had with Tu Zhejong, like maybe he didn't share your sentiments, but I thought he was on your side, right? Or I thought he shared similar perspectives. But then a day later or two days later, after you guys received death threats or after you received death threats, I don't know if he did. This dude poses up a status like, I think, you know, peaceful protests should Mm -hmm. be the way I've always been there with peaceful protesters etc etc and I was pissed Mm -hmm. because I'm like one either you're a bullshit advocate or two you are a fucking coward because you walked back everything you know you and what I thought he was supporting in the chat right but you walked it back when you received this onslaught of hate and trolls and critiques from the people in our community right mm-hmm. so and that was and i called him out right and then this dude decides to screenshot and like post a long ass reply on his status screenshots me my comment and then was like well here's my response to you, monica lee like you know i'd love to have you come out and help me clean in the community like it's always good to have another sister out there and i'm like dude oh, i didn't I'm not- do that I'm not going to play your game, right? I'm not like, I don't need to prove anything to you. I don't live in the community, but I've always been advocating for my people, right? Mm -hmm. Like whether near or far. And I was like, you know, thanks for your hand of friendship, but I'm not here to be your friend right now. I'm trying to hold you accountable because you have the influence, right? Quote unquote influence or the people who apparently look up to you for some reason to change their minds. Right. And I, but I'm, I'm wondering, like, I, you, you started receiving these death threats, but you remained firm, right? And I was trying to tell mm-hmm. that to Twitter. I was like, fucking remain firm in your stance, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't be a coward. But like, how do you navigate your trauma, or how do you balance that when you're being attacked from all sides yeah. and, and also being the ally that you are? Because, man, I mean, and and our exhaustion is nothing compared to what our black and brown citizens yes. go through, you know. But I, I'm like. You, as I, I feel like you're like the only beacon in our community that like understands the injustices that black people have faced and that Hmong people have faced. So mm-hmm. in a long-winded question, yeah, I, I'm just like, how do you like even balance it and retain your like your peace? You know, yeah. how do you keep your peace? I mean, I think uh, just so you know, like I am an abolitionist. That means that I don't believe in the the police or the prison systems or the incarceration system because, and I come from uh, 20 years of gender justice work. 
meaning I work with sexual assault, uh, domestic violence survivors, you know, and so people are like, that's interesting because those are the people that we're thinking like should be imprisoned. And those mm-hmm. are the people who think uh, those are the rapers and the child molesters. And uh, those are the people that people are talking about. What I know to be true is in our community, there are more rapists and child molesters and sexual assault and domestic violence people out here than they are behind bars. And so that's another conversation for another time. But the Tudor, I, I think Tudor, he can say whatever he wants about peaceful protesters, whatever. Like he has his own um, idea of how people should rebel, uh, not rebel, protest against violence. I'm not that. Yeah. I am uh, a Hmong woman who understands surviving Hmong patriarchy, who understands surviving uh, uh, toxic uh, masculinity, who mm-hmm. understands surviving. Uh, I've lived in Thailand where Hmong people look like dirty, uneducated. I've been to Laos where I have to register because people think that we're there to cause harm. So mm-hmm. I know what it feels like to be of an oppressed class. I'm not saying nobody else does, but that doesn't escape me when I'm thinking about somebody else's humanity. The other thing is that like, I've got such great, I mean, I've built a relationship with, with uh, uh, black freedom fighters in a way that when I didn't get it, they were kind enough to teach me, or I was Mm -hmm. kind enough to have open ears and be like, Oh, that makes sense to me as an oppressed Hmong person. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really look at uh, too far at any, uh, anyone else's experience, but our own our own of hundreds of years of fleeing from country to country because we want to be free. And so if you can feel that and you understand your people's history, why would you not be able to understand somebody else's history? So the attack on me, just so your listeners understand the day before (laughs) the the fires, the uprising in Minneapolis, I said, I was going to disengage because so many people were saying so many anti uh, black stuff. And I was just like, I can't. But one of the things that I learned from Ferguson, they said, go back home. The best thing you can do for us is to help your people understand. Mm-hmm. The best thing you can do is do your own work in your own community. Yeah. And so that's what I've been doing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. So on that day, I'm like, I want to delete all my uncles and two, two towels of mm-hmm. my life out of my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I made a commitment. I said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to have this conversation. Now, to the trolls out there, that does not mean you. If I wasn't mm-hmm. friends with you before uh, Facebook, uh, before this concept, it doesn't mean I'm going to engage in some ignorant conversation with you. Yep. So just know that 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 wasn't meant for you, like stranger uh, trollers. Uh, yeah. So um, then a lot of people, I was like, fine. And then that night I went to sleep. But when I woke up, I, I heard that Target was burnt down. I understood that. I understood that. And I said, yes, fuck Target, because George is never coming back. And so I think those two posts, like it just went viral, which is fine. I'm not afraid of that. But as a gender justice advocate who's worked on domestic violence and sexual assault work for a long time, one of the things that you all don't know about me is a lot of the strengths of domestic homicide suicides in the state of Wisconsin. I was intricately involved in that, meaning what Bahua died. And her, uh, mm-hmm. there was a press mm-hmm. conference, the Hmong women in Walsall, they were scared. So I was the spokesperson. I went and said to, and there was Hmong men in the audience, there was police officers, there was a community uh, hearing. And I was the one who said, if Hmong men want to die, they should kill themselves. But we as Hmong women, are, we still want to live. And I said, Bahua crawled after he shot her and she was pregnant seven months. She crawled on the lawn to get help. So that leaves me to believe that she actually wanted to live. And so I mm. say that to my mom. I've said that to people. So what I'm saying to you all is I'm a controversial uh, uh, person and in my thoughts, but this wasn't the first time. And so right. what made it anti-Black was that I was getting uh, threats beyond the normal of, of me, just my gender. So what made it gender specific and the, uh, what made it gender-based violence towards me versus not Tudor? is the threats to rape me, mm-hmm, the yep. threats to to do bodily harm to me, the callings of like um, the name calling, like those are very gender specific. And I say that because, and it was a, it, and people, this is what control and power, power and control and abuse looks like. They did not send those message to me to silence me only. They sent it to three of you too. So if you read my post, you knew if you didn't agree with the community or if you said certain things that they didn't like, this is what was going to happen to you too. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that. 
And so silence is wasn't going to help us. Me going into this, like, let me just delete my post. No, I didn't delete my post, but I will delete you because if you're causing harm. So anyway, how I, I'm tying that all to like the, the gender-based violence and then the anti-blackness in my community. <clears throat> I have been a controversial uh, um, person throughout the community for a long time. So that's not new. But the threat to cause me bodily harm is new because of the anti-blackness. Because now I'm I'm also pro-mom women, I'm also a feminist, um, and I'm also a gender justice advocate. But on top of that, I'm also pro-black. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why I want my community to understand this is how it shows up, even though you don't think that you are. That, Sorry, that, it's, it's so much for us to take in. No, but I I think it's so important to share that because people, we don't see the connections there, right? And, and I think people like throughout all of this, Hmong people are like, well, how can we be pro-Black and pro-Hmong or pro-Hmong yes. woman, you know? And, and I don't think people can see that connection. So it's really important to- Yeah. And to all my that. work, it's all been about Hmong people. I'm not yeah. out here serving mm-hmm. Black people. <laughs> black people can do that for themselves. My Everything that I've done in my whole life around gender justice, around uh, ec- economic justice, around racial justice, has been about Hmong women and Hmong people. The other piece that I, I think this is a great opportunity, and I hope that a lot of people listen to your podcast. You know, there was a, a message, and Tujer that night was online, and um, after we did that video, a uh, Hmong man in Minnesota called and threatened me and consistently called me throughout the night. Mm-hmm. And then he, then um, what he didn't understand is that, you know, I mean, this is so easy. You can't call somebody black in this day and age. Yeah. Like, <laughs> really? So, Anyway, I kept it on, and then he called me the next day and threatened me, sent me my address, told me he was mm-hmm. coming for me. And then Thujar just happened to be online that night. So I was like, hey, listen to this. It's kind of scary. And I spoke to my co-director, who's Black, and she said, it, this isn't, isn't coming from white supremacy. It's not coming from somebody. in. It's coming from your community. Because she says, uh, somebody said, burn it all down, and it's been retweeted a million times, and nobody's getting that kind of threat. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But anyway, what I'm, uh, what I'm sharing is that we don't need moment to save us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not looking for a savior. Uh, what I am going to be direct about is Dunza has a platform, and I feel like uh, the stalker uh, came through uh, that talk with Dunza, his platform. Mm-hmm. So that was good that he addressed that. But um, in his um, talk, he said, I agree because I'm a kind person to not call the police. No, I didn't agree because I'm a kind person. I'm a prison abolitionist. Right, because you I didn't believe stress. in the system. Yes, I have a system of holding him accountable. So I was already working with 23 other Hmong um, men through Man Forward mm-hmm. to hold his ass accountable, the the stalker, the uh, creep, mm-hmm. to hold his ass they were already calling him and they were already we already had steps ahead of time if you don't do this if you don't stop that and what i know about uh people who are perpetrators like that this i'm not his first victim nor will mm-hmm. nor will i be, will you be the last and so when it came out like oh you know like i i'm thankful that Thunzer did that because he has a different listener mm-hmm. but what i want to be very clear is it wasn't just because i was kind i actually have a strategy behind how he should be held accountable and that he should, number one, stop the harm right away. Number two, who are your victims? And number three, if I'm not going to call the police on you, everybody in your community and your family should know that you are the creep. You know? And so I just want to put that out there because, like, I haven't had time. But I hope that you all have a lot of listeners out there. Prison abolitionists being defunding the police. It isn't about not creating safety for you all. And if anybody knows about safety, I am a domestic violence, mm-hmm. sexual assault advocate for 20 years. I know that Hmong people know how to create safety plans for themselves. And I'm going to give you this, uh, this last example. I learned this. There was this uh, genderqueer Hmong elder in uh, Thailand. And she told this story. She said, I went to visit my, my daughter. That night, a Hmong man came to see me. And that evening, uh, he came and he sexually assaulted me. Mm-hmm. And she said, in the morning, I told them who it was. And I told them that I wanted them to take care of it. And, and then they said they spoke to him and he's never going to do it again. And then the Hmong women in the neighborhood were like, yeah, we've been sexually assaulted by his ass too. 
And so she said that wasn't enough for her. So she took off her shoes and she beat the shit out of him. And we said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm saying to you all that there are different methods. There are other ways and people have done that. And so like, it's okay for us to not be so scared about protection and that we can like dream of a new way of protecting each other. No, absolutely. I think we've talked about this before too on our podcast where Mm -hmm. we were, where we talk about restorative justice, right. And where we talk about, you know, alternatives and like in the Hmong community, we don't call the police. We call our clan leaders. Not that it always works because we know as women, it doesn't always fucking work. It really works, but um, that's our system. Right. And, And hopefully in a new reimagined system that we have, you know, but better ways to, to hold people accountable to their actions. But chime in on the restorative yeah, justice. Katie, go ahead. I just wanted to say that a lot of our schools are trying to implement that. I know that with our um, schools yeah. of color, um, that's one thing that we try to do is keep our students in the classrooms and give them yes. a voice with restorative justice. And with this past um, half year, I got to work in it and see it in action. And mm. I really think that it does help a lot. And I wish that I had a voice or had something like that growing up. So I just say to continue with that. So. Yeah, no, definitely. We've been fighting locally to get cops out of our schools for the last for like four years. If, and I hope that it, it happens like it and everyone else. I, I need, hopefully all the school districts, you know, follow suit and cut their ties with the local P, um, police departments. But yeah. So, you know, you mentioned like, taking justice into our own hands, right? Or figuring out new systems. And then <clears throat> as a lifelong advocate, because you will like, what, how do we, because I think a lot of our conversations, like for me, myself, I'm a cis hetero girl, woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, I often forget to check my biases there and my lens there. Like we've often, I for often forget to include and center black um, trans and LGBTQ mm-hmm. people. So um, especially because it is pride month. Like we also want to, I guess, just figure out how do we center those people into the conversation and into our advocacy work? Um, because, you know, like two black trans women were killed this past week. Yana yeah. um, Dare, a black trans woman, transgender woman was beat, beaten up in St. Paul, like as a mm. result after the riots mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that was just our one last, like one, obviously it's not a one-off, but you're like, how do we continue also centering um, trans and LGBTQ people into the Black Lives Matter conversation and in our work? I feel like, again, it, it goes back to doing the work in our own community. Because we can't center Black, LGBTQ, trans, queer folks if we don't center that for our own folks. And so, you know, even in our, like, Freedom Inc. is a queer justice organization, mm, which yes. means that we center queer bodies and we center queer ideologies and we hire and and they're in part of our leadership. And still we have homophobia and transphobia that we have to, like, consistently address uh, just because we have cis, straight, gender, femme folks who work here, too, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is like, I mean... We're talking about it in a way that we think our people already understand. But I think mm-hmm. what happens is like, these are just terms. But what does it really mean to have that conversation from home people, y'all? So I think that one of the things that I've learned is like the fact that, you know, they are excluded within home families. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're hindsight. And so, yeah, then it's really hard for us to even center Black queer Folks mm. who are also equally disproportionately murdered by the hands of people and systems, right? And so I, I would say start with us first. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a trans, queer, gay person in their family, in their circle, but their lives are not centered, yes. you know? So let's like start centering that. What does that conversation actually look like? Um, and I I've come from this premise of if at the core of um, sexism and misogyny is the hatred for femmes or hatred for women as the, the weaker sex the oppression against you and the hatred against you is even worse yeah. and so until we uplift like those who are most oppressed in our communities because if queer and trans um and gender non-conforming Hmong people get respect, you already get the respect. 
-hmm. It's automatic for the cis straight gender queer, I mean, uh, femmes, mom femmes. And so that's kind of like where I've always, um, my work stems from. If we fight for those who are most oppressed, then we're sure those of us who are not as oppressed are sure to get the benefits of that. Can you say that again, nice and loud? Because that also <laughs> falls into yes. this Black Lives Matter conversation. If we're fighting for yes. that, if they get these rights, you, you know who yes. else benefits? Us. So that's what we to hear. I just want to say thank you, Kajo, for your, your wisdom, your insight, and really your time and your energy. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of work, and we know you could be resting <laughs> your energy. So Thank you um, just for being open and honest. And Liz and Katie, I don't know if you guys have other parting thoughts, but I'm just going to leave it at that. No, we're just so appreciative to have you come here and to share with us as, um, you know, I mean, I think we're still really young in this work and we just needed some kind of guidance and some kind of wisdom to um, head us in the right direction and some um, affirmation of all like the things that we have done and just like the exhausting conversations we have had and need to continue to have to make this um this future that we all envision possible yeah um i think my thing is just it's been an incredible conversation so thank you for for tying everything in together um and for all the work that you you you've done and you know will do in the future, um, I'm kind of embarrassed because I forgot. Like right, like you were super instrumental in passing policies in in Wisconsin, right, to protect women. And thank you for all that you do for Hmong women and you know for for the community in general. With you know your conversation with us today, we hope our listeners and everyone in our community will just walk away being like a better ally and making the commitment to be better and do better and make a more just world by continuing the work in our community 